Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. We are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Names to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Corey. Dr. Corey is an assistant professor of political science at Baylor University and the director of Baylor's Honors Program. She was also a visiting professor at the American Enterprise Institute for the 2018-2019 academic year. For our winter 2021 issue, Elizabeth wrote a terrific essay titled Questioning Cultural Humility. In her piece, she examined the rise of cultural humility as a pedagogical tool and even a moral imperative in American institutions of higher learning. Though the term itself sounds innocuous, she argues that the seemingly unobjectionable phrase actually masks a far more controversial ambition. At its core, the push for greater cultural humility is not only about changing the way teachers teach, but about controlling what they teach and how that material is presented. Implicit in the call for cultural humility, she argues, is the need to deprioritize and deconstruct the books and ideas that have traditionally defined and defended Western civilization. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. So we're going to start out with, first of all, kind of defining the term that your whole piece is about, cultural humility. You write that the origin of the term, it's kind of interesting. It comes from the healthcare industry, where it was used to advocate for a shift in the way doctors and nurses interact with their patients. So it's, it seems kind of like a weird thing for it to start there and then kind of become this big thing on campuses. So we wanted to first ask you, what is the background of this term? And then how did it migrate to universities? Great question. Well, it begins with, as you say, nursing and social work. And the idea, it was propounded in an article from 1998 by a nursing and I believe a social work professor. And they said, the prior understanding of what we ought to be doing as healthcare practitioners was to cultivate cultural competence, which means you as a person who is going to be in charge of taking care of patients need to know about other cultures. You need to understand what it's like to be in a culture that is not the dominant white American culture. And so they started instituting cultural competence requirements for doctors and nurses and social workers. But then in 98, these two authors of the article that is this seminal article about cultural humility decided that's not a good way of thinking about what we need to be doing as healthcare practitioners, because what it implies is that we're finished. You, you kind of take it as a test. You know, you've got your cultural competence, then you can go on. <laughs> but they said, actually, what we need is something more like the term they invented, cultural humility, which is, it's really a three-part idea. And I, I say this in the essay in National Affairs, it requires really three things. The first is a continuous self-evaluation and self-critique of the practitioner. So the doctor, the nurse, the social worker is continually evaluating his or her own response to the patient, always humble in the sense that you cannot assume you know more than the person who's come to you for care. The second part of the cultural humility requirement is that you have to desire to fix power imbalances. In other words, you are assumed to have more power as the practitioner and the patient is assumed to have less. What these people are arguing for is that you need to actually flip that on its head and give the patient the power in the relationship, and you become the listener. Now, to some extent, that makes, that makes good sense, but we, we can talk more about the way it's, it's really taken a bit too far. And finally, the third part of the cultural humility mandate is really the social justice part of it. It requires a commitment on the part of the practitioner to advocate for other people, to produce change in the system and change in institutions. So it isn't enough to simply understand your particular client, but you've got to get out there and work to promote institutional arrangements that are better from a social justice perspective. So those three things were the origin of, of cultural humility. And then, of course, 
as we hear later, were translated into the universities. And so let's talk a little bit about how that sort of migration happened. You cite the work of, I'm going to butcher this name, James Arvinatakis, I believe, yes. who's a social and cultural studies professor in, from Australia. So in, in 2014, he took that term and applied it to academia and thought that similar kinds of cultural humility needed to be put into practice there. What kinds of reforms did he mean? How did those three kinds of criteria that you were using before translate into the academic sphere? Well, they translate into the academic sphere, but in his original, this was actually a blog post that he published that I guess went viral at some level. And he said, cultural humility is a practice that we ought to have in every cultural relationship, not just nursing, social work, but the university and all other institutions where there's a differential power. In practice, what he meant by it was to say, we need to get away. There's this terrible phrase that I've heard used at Baylor and at other universities, the sage on the stage model. In other words, there's this notion that university classes are lecture-based. It's this old guy with notes up at the front of a large lecture class. He's a sage. He knows everything. And he is delivering content and information to the class. That is the model that Arvanitakis says needs to be got rid of. We, we don't need to have these lectures. We don't need to have people who think they know more than the students lecturing at the students. I mean, if there was one image that I think underlies the cultural humility movement, it's that we must get rid of this, this hierarchy of power, which mm-hmm. is what they say, not, not necessarily of knowledge, but they, they say it is a hierarchy of power. Things they, they think are positives, Arvanitakis argues for things like experiential learning, service learning, the flipped classroom. For those of you who aren't familiar with that, that's where the students go and listen to the lecture beforehand and then come to the class and talk about what they heard. And it's very, it's very much sort of a seminar style class. Now I'm all for seminars, don't get me wrong, but it's a way of saying, you know, the things that formerly went on in classrooms don't have to happen there anymore. You can do that in advance and then you can come in and talk about what you, what you heard. Other things that he would like, Arvanitakis would like to reform are things like just the structure of the university as a whole. I mean, it is hierarchical in origin. There are gatekeepers of disciplines. He wants to get rid of what he calls disciplinary gate- gatekeepers. All of it is focused too much on the past and not enough on the, on the present and the future. And so in his writings, he argues that we need to, what he calls future-proof education for the future. He quotes Antonio Gramsci, who posits that education must be about promoting social change and challenging traditional power relations. So social change is at the heart of it, really. And the university is kind of a holdout, you know, in traditional power relations and that needs to go. Elizabeth, you also kind of mentioned three guiding principles for cultural humility once we get to the, the level of the academy. We talked about already radical egalitarianism between students and teachers, that idea of the flipped classroom you were talking about, but also a couple other things. An emphasis on criticizing Western culture and ideas and values. And also the third thing, which you just mentioned, the university should try to achieve social change. So let's start with that second one in terms of a criticism of Western culture. What is the relationship between cultural humility and Western values? Why do people who advocate for cultural humility on campuses tend to criticize Western culture? They see Western culture, I think, above all, as being exclusive, as being, I mean, we all know this very well. Anybody who reads National Affairs or is involved with AEI probably knows very well what I'm talking about. There's a notion that we've not attended enough to the experiences of the oppressed. In a certain way, this whole conversation really rests on the, on the insight of Herbert Marcuse and Paolo, I used to say Freire, but I think it's Freire, it's hard to pronounce his name, who wrote this very influential book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which mm-hmm. makes its rounds 
on university campuses all the time. And it's a very interesting book and well worth reading. But something like that is at the as at the heart of the cultural humility movement, which is that the hierarchy, the patriarchy, the, the Western values that prize this sort of disinterest, that's we cannot go on anymore this way because it's it, it excludes the experiences of a great many people who want to talk about their own experiences. And, and in a certain sense, cultural humility makes some sense if you in certain fields, if you're talking about experiential, just people's experiences. If you're if, in social work, I think the experience that people bring to a social work class makes a great deal of difference but less so perhaps in history or certainly in physics. So there are these, there's differences across fields that I think cultural humility makes more sense in some fields and less sense in others. But in some, the argument is that it, traditional Western education has failed to understand the experiences of all people and it prioritizes the dominant culture, which of course has been the, the white male culture. Would it be fair to say then, in a sense, that the kind of second and third components of cultural humility, right, the, the criticism of Western cultural, you know, culture pretty uniquely or intensely, at least on the one hand, and the desire for social change are actually really animated by the same sort of principle. The need to criticize Western civilization stems out of a belief that only in doing that will we be able to achieve the kinds of cultural transformations that really need to happen writ large. Absolutely. And what's at the heart of Arvanitakis and the cultural humility movement is that is a notion that the primary goal of universities is social change. I mean, and that I think is worth noting simply because it's so different from a traditional understanding of, of university education. I mean, you could put it just very simply to say, and I like to put it simply like this at times, look, why do we go to universities? Well, we go to, to learn the tradition we emerge out of. We go to inherit a whole lot of stuff that we didn't create ourselves and won't know about unless we're told about it. And then to, to be able on the basis of that kind of self-formation to to go out and do things. But this is this cultural humility model is quite the opposite of that. It's first of all, skeptical, worried about the past, in general, hostile toward the past, and looks to the future to say, so many of the things we've inherited sort of institutionally are false, faulty or flawed. Let's rather look to the future and think about how we might reform. I mean, reform is the, is the guiding word here, and it is fundamentally at odds with traditional university education. And Elizabeth, we're going to get to in just a second, kind of your idea of an alternative to cultural humility, namely liberal education, and kind of what you how you view view that alternative. But first, I wanted to ask you, and one of the reasons we just want to have you on the podcast is kind of your perspective from someone who works in academia and maybe deals with things like cultural humility or those types of ideas on a daily basis. What is your sense of how kind of cultural humility has progressed in the last few years as someone who works at a university, and what do you think its future is, kind of from what you've seen recently? That's a very interesting question. It has not yet become the kind of term that everybody knows. I mean, we all know the terms intersectionality. Mm-hmm. We know about microaggressions. We know unconscious bias. We know implicit bias. We know all these, these terms that are very much part of the social justice world that is the world of most universities. Cultural humility is newer, and I, and I wonder if it will have the wide appeal that these others have. I suspect it will simply because it's such an interesting mix of sort of innocuous words. I say this in the beginning of the essay. Right. I mean, who is against humility? You know, you can't say, oh, well, I'm, I'm anti-humility. Of course not. No, we all want to be thought of as humble, good listeners, patient, all these virtuous things that I think humility takes into account. It's especially interesting in the Christian context because it is such a core Christian virtue to, to be humble and to really have internalized humility. And I, I think that is important. 
The problem here, though, is that it's paired with this word cultural that really gives it a different valence, which is to say it is resting on a notion of cultural hegemony. What we need to be humble about is perhaps not so much our own particular knowledge, but about Western civilization in general, which has been, in the, in the eyes of many of the proponents of cultural humility, oppressive and harmful to people. So it, whether or not it will have the kind of wide appeal that the other terms do, I'm not sure. But it's, part, it's, a, it's of a piece with all those terms. I mean, this is very much the, the social justice approach to university life. There is some place for that, but I think when it, when it overtakes the university as a whole, we're in for some problems. To the extent that we're all mandated to be culturally humble in the way the term, in, in what the term really means, then I think that's a, that's a big problem. And that's not very humble for oh. advocates of cultural humility to tell us all to be culturally humble. Certain, certainly not. But just for the sake of, of scope and scale, and I'm genuinely curious as well, like, we hear all these horror stories on the right about the things going on in the universities, but have you, are you finding that this term and, and the terms like it have been pretty consistently weaponized across campuses, or is this sort of a peripheral but maybe growing problem at this stage? <laughs> That's a great question and very hard to answer. I think a lot <laughs> of it depends on where you are. I know that it is true. I have a friend who's who's at UT as an undergraduate, and I looked at his syllabus, and the first 16 pages of the syllabus were filled with disclaimers and Title IX, microaggression warnings. I mean, it was, you did not get into the actual syllabus until page 17. So that's a large state university. I suspect that's pretty typical. It's going to vary from campus to campus. My, my own alma mater is Oberlin College, and I'm quite sure that all of this is, is very much in play there. At a place like, I teach at Baylor University in Waco. At a place like Baylor, there is still a place for more traditional liberal education to go on, and it is protected here for us. So to some extent, you know, I would say things are, things are good for me. But the question is, to the extent that terms like this get used and thrown around and nobody really knows what they mean, and then they just become part of the teaching of new teachers, it makes me worry because this is really a revolutionary I mean, I don't think everybody who uses the term knows how revolutionary it is, but it is revolutionary in a way because it is saying all the old ways we used to teach are flawed and they are power relationships. And we need to get rid of that power, that power imbalance and put them on a level playing field with the teachers and let them teach the teachers. I mean, I'm honestly not kidding. This is throughout this literature that the teachers don't know more than the students need to be listeners. Now, even as I say that, we all know that teachers ought to be humble in a different way. And that's what the second part of my essay is about, that there is a real humility in teaching, but that's not what's going on here. So they're kind of, there's an importing of a certain worldview that is, that is under the surface here. And that's dangerous. Yeah, I think that's a good segue, Elizabeth, to kind of talk about the last part of your essay and the idea of the traditional liberal education that's trying to still be preserved at places like Baylor, like where you teach. So let's talk about first, how it's a different framework in the sense that what is liberal education's relationship to inherited culture and inherited learning? And then also, you've already touched on this, but the idea that this approach to tradition is humble and humbling to the student and the teacher. Could you talk a little bit about that for us and kind of how it's a different framework than cultural humility? Well, I think it is entirely a different framework because for one, it does not aim at social change per se. I mean, when you think about what it traditionally meant to go to a university, not even 100 years back or even 50 years back, you sort of arrived and you said, oh, well, I think I'm going to major in this. And then you took classes and you were exposed to a great, and I love the word inheritance. I read a lot of Michael Oakeshott and Oakeshott talks about education as an inheritance. And that's really what it has been. I mean, 
why do we go to college? But to take these classes and things that we didn't know about. I'll never forget my own experience in taking art history. I didn't really know that was a subject. I took my first class and I thought, oh my gosh, here's a whole world of experience that I didn't know existed. Now I know it's there. But boy, this guy who's teaching me about it knows a lot more about it than I do. <laughs> and I would like to apprentice myself to him, you know, for a while to learn what he has to, to teach me. So there's this, there's this sense of an education as an opportunity to go and to be, to be apprenticed. I like the word apprentice as well. And to, to see the Western tradition, assuming that's what we choose to study as a whole, and to try to learn some parts of it. And I think the way in which that is humbling is, is to see that you are a very small part of a very long, rich and storied tradition. And even what you'll learn in four years is a tiny, tiny bit of what there is to be learned. And that in itself is humbling to me in a way that is very, very powerful. And now I'm a teacher at a college. I still feel it every, every day, every class I teach. You know, you can't, you can't read the Odyssey anytime without seeing, oh, there's something I missed there. There's, there's some whole host of, of interesting points that are brought out in, in a seminar conversation. So all that is to say, I think the desire to come in and use your university education as a tool for social reform is really 180 degrees difference from the kind of arriving learning what there is to be learned, and then, then going from there. So that's the role, I guess, students and teachers could have to their own tradition, to the, to the inherited Western tradition. What do you see as the role for engagement with other traditions within that framework? Is it, is it a worthwhile endeavor for students to make use of, you know, I don't even know, Confucius or whatever, we, you know, it might be that's beyond our Western inheritance, but potentially still useful in that sort of quest for, for knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny that you say Confucius because somebody like Confucius or Chuangzu, these people are giving ideas that actually have some overlap with, you know, Stoic and Epicurean and, and other ancient ideas. And so there's a conversation to be had there about the permanence of, of great ideas. So I would say, yes, of course. I guess the thing, the reason I come back to the Western tradition is just that it's our tradition in America. And it's a good starting point. I mean, I've had students who've come and said, I want to learn all about the Middle East, or I want to learn all about East Asia. Great. But in all those traditions, I think I would advocate the same thing. Submit to them first. Don't simply jump in and criticize, but submit, learn what they are. And then, yes, you can criticize. I mean, there's a new book by last year put out by Alan Jacobs, Breaking Bread with the Dead. Great book. And the whole question of the book is how do we approach the past? Do we just say, oh, it's the past, it's the Western tradition, it's great. And he says, well, no, we, we evaluate, we read the authors, we take their insights, but we can question them too. But let's, let's have a humble and charitable way of engaging them before we start to criticize them. And I think that's what we're lacking so much now, which is that people get into the classes and they learn about Plato as a totalitarian. And that's the first thing they know about Plato, but that's not the first thing you need to know about Plato. <laughs> Elizabeth, I want to ask you, this is what I thought was one of the most interesting parts of your essay, was the idea that liberal education has a different understanding of enduring pain and suffering and how that can help you grow and mature as a human being and, and how you approach life. Could you talk a little bit about that for us? Yes. This is an interesting idea that I'm actually borrowing. I'm building on my own experience, of course, but I'm also borrowing from a man who's in education. His name is Avi Mintz, and he writes about pain in education. and his thesis is that often pain is a very good learning tool. 
Now, I'm not saying teachers should inflict pain on their students to be sadistic or to be mean or hurtful. But what I'm saying is a very is a very obvious point to anybody who considers it. Do you forget the terrible pain you've had in your life? I, I doubt it. There's sometimes where pain is a very concentrated and helpful learning experience. And sometimes pain in school comes with a kind of embarrassment of, oh, I thought I knew more than I did. The test or the essay showed me I didn't really know what I was talking about. That's actually a way of cultivating humility in the greatest sense. Let's have this conversation. Let me see the limits of my knowledge. I mean, this is, this is Plato's insight. So I think that kind of pain, embarrassment, it's not harm, but, but just realizing, okay, well, there are limits to my knowledge. I don't know as much as I thought I did. And that's the kind of thing that I think cultural humility wants to say shouldn't happen because we're all just talking about our experiences. My experience is as valid as yours. I know about some things, you know about other things. But the truth is we all know there are some people who are very wise and know quite a bit, and there are other people who know less, and that matters, certainly in, in certain areas more than others. But I, I would say part of growing up and becoming an adult is realizing often you don't know as much as you thought you did, and sometimes the learning comes in the feeling of, of embarrassment. So as we sort of conclude, I know earlier we asked you about you know, a sort of insider's perspective for where some of the more egregious implementations of cultural humility have been going on, but we also wanted to hear from you if, if there were any particularly noteworthy institutions or places where you thought this alternative, this liberal model of liberal education was being preserved in a meaningful way. Yeah. Well, the one that comes to mind immediately, I wrote recently a little bit about this place is, it's called Augustine College. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's up in Canada. It's a one-year intense introduction to basically Western civilization. And it, oh, it is not an accredited school. It's just a program as far as I understand it. But in a program like that, students are really walked through the whole history of the West from ancient I mean, Hebrew, Greek, up to modernity. And in doing it and just sort of giving the broad sweep of, of our tradition, then they can go on and they can go to college and study specialized things. But they've got kind of a grounding that seems to me to be very, very helpful. I mean, I will never forget my own undergraduate liberal arts college, which was great. I mean, Oberlin is a great school, but I remember thinking, well, where do I start? And nobody told me where to start. I just had to choose a class here in English, maybe choose a class in political science over here, but they could be modern or ancient. And there's just no coherence to the program. And I think any of, any of the, mod- and there are a lot of places that do this now, great book schools, I mean, St. John's, I think, does to a large extent, does this. There's a sense that you're walking through something that has coherence and that changes over time. And it does you good to know where did it start? How does it change? And how do we get to where we are? Which often doesn't happen, but Augustine does it. Again, St. John's, various others, especially small Catholic colleges do this well. And honors colleges. I mean, I teach in an honors college at Baylor and we try, we don't do as much as we'd like, but we have an ancient great books and then a contemporary great books. And we can walk through all those courses with students and, and give them a sense of, okay, here's, here's what you're working with. Now you can go take your specialized classes. There's one quick follow-up that's actually just occurring to me now. So you kind of, the way the essay structures it is, is the liberal education, it, it's presented as a more authentic kind of humility and a more ultimately kind of persuasive and meaningful concept of humility. And I'm wondering to sort of put that in dialogue with the advocates of cultural humility in the sense of, if you think that it's possible that 
the people who might be drawn to cultural humility for all of the right reasons could be persuaded in this current climate? Do you think we could reach out to those people and, and make contact? That's a great question. And that's a question I often wonder about. My hope is yes, but I think getting at the assumptions that drive advocates of cultural humility versus what I'm calling advocates of liberal humility, those assumptions are really different. I mean, my assumption about university education is that it is, again, as we've talked about, not that you're never critical, but that you begin from a place of charity toward the past. And what I know about the people who are advocating cultural humility and various other progressive educational pedagogies is that the past is a problem. It just is. It oppressed women. It did terrible things to Black people in America. I mean, all that is, that is true. But as such, it therefore can't be taken as something that we can learn and appreciate. So they're constantly looking to change and to reform and to look to the future. And I'm asking, well, let's look at the past first. So I think it's hard to engage in those conversations simply because the assumptions about value are different. Now, are many of the people who are advocating cultural humility good, good people and devoted to teaching and devoted to their students? Absolutely. Of course they are. And I think most of them don't know the history of the term cultural humility because it took a lot of digging for me to figure out what it was. In practice, I think it's possible to have those conversations, but I wonder if our sort of deep-seated assumptions about the purpose of, of education would put a barrier in place there. Yeah, so just a final question, Elizabeth. I mean, my sense would be that, you know, liberal education is always going to be on universities because it, it asks the central questions about what it means to be human. And I think that's something that always appeals to students. But based off what you're describing there, does that mean the future is kind of silos where you've got liberal education? There's some campuses that preserve liberal education, others that just focus more on cultural humility. Is, is that kind of like the future we're heading toward? Or what do you think? That's a great question. It's going to obviously depend on the college. The small liberal arts colleges can still do the more liberal approach if they wish. It's hard for me to say where the problem is most significant. I mean, is it, is it in the cultural humility, intersectionality, social justice drive, or is it in the sort of social utility work and functionary aspect of education? And what I mean by that is to say, it seems to me there are two problems that universities are facing with respect to traditional liberal education. And one of them is this kind of cultural humility, social justice. But the other is college is a place you go to get a credential so that you can get a job. And I think that might be even more powerful than these social justice reforms sure. that are trying to be put, put through at universities. Because parents quite rightly want to know, you know, if I'm going to spend all this money, especially at a private college, does it make sense for a student to come out with a degree that, you know, where they won't make money? We've all heard this way too much. We all know these arguments. And so defending a liberal education in the face of that is, I wouldn't say it's hard, but it's, it has to be done. And I think the, the sort of practical character of most people is going to say, no, I either want to you know, get out and make a difference in the world through social justice, or I want to get a good job. And so those things are always going to be working against traditional liberal education, as I understand it. And I think that's a shame. That's why we have to promote it. Exactly. I was going to say, I think your essay did a great job of that. And so I appreciate you writing it for us and also uh, joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to read Elizabeth's essay or other articles on National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.